I'd like us then to read the text together. And I'm reading from the, uh, the inspired English Standard Version. Uh, but let's, uh, it'll, it'll differ a little bit from, from yours, but let's stand together as we, as we read the text. You'll see that there's a content is the same. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dwelt well with Abraham, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave them men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And so Abram went up to Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take to the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot filled up his eyes and saw, lifted up his eyes rather, and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled from among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk, go through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Please be seated. And let us bow our heads together in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, I pray that you would have your hand upon us now at this time as we are assembled in this place. And, you know, the station of each of our lives, the circumstances that surround us, different contexts that are uniquely ours. And I pray that it would be by your grace that you would extend your hand today. I pray that you would lend and extend comfort to those who need comfort and strength to those who need strength. Father, where there is a desperate need within the heart of anyone to sense a new touch of your grace, may your grace overflow to such ones today. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the word of God. And Father, I pray that today you would have your hand upon me, forgive me of my sin and Cleanse me of unrighteousness, and I pray, Father, that you might use the words that I speak today, that you might be glorified, and that those assembled here might be encouraged in your way. Father, it is uh, with a deep sense of need, now we turn our eyes to you, and we pray that we might hear your voice, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We have been going through the book of Genesis, and I'm not sure just exactly how many messages I have given on Genesis, but I think there have been a a significant number by now. And the last time we were gathered together, we were looking at Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, uh, we have the recording of Abram going uh, down to Egypt and taking those that are with him on that journey, and they're going there because of this great famine that has come upon the land of Canaan, and in Egypt, there is much abundance of water, and there's much food for the people there. So we're going to pick up our our text this morning, our study this morning with chapter 12, and and before we actually begin the chapter, I wanted us to read from Acts 11, verse 23. This was another adjustment that I didn't share with Andreas before uh, the message this morning. But we're looking at the outworking of God's grace. And in Acts chapter 11, verse 23, we have the account where, uh, where the gospel has been taken to Antioch and are coming into the kingdom of God. They are believing, confessing faith, and the report is going throughout the region that there are these Hellenists who are believing in Christ. And so from the church of Jerusalem, Barnabas is sent that he might go to Antioch to determine and evaluate that work. Is this a genuine work of God? Barnabas is sent there. And as Barnabas arrives, this is what is said in verse 23. When he came, he saw the grace of God. And he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. It's kind of an interesting phrase here, isn't it? He saw the grace of God. Now, how is it that we would see the grace of God? Well, we would see the grace of God by the evidence that flow from the grace of God being resident in the lives of people. That where the grace of God is, there is a natural outworking of God's grace. There is a sense in which that grace can be seen. 
And when we come to our text this morning, as we work our way through it, we will see that there is an outworking of God's grace in the account that is before us. And now working in the lives of those people that are there, and particularly in the life of Abram himself. And so this morning as we begin, I would like us to begin with a a brief review over where we've been. Then I would like us to consider grace and its consequences. Grace and worship. Grace and relationships. Grace resisted. And grace and blessing. I'm not sure that I really like those five headings that I've given them, but that's about the best that I could do to try to assemble together the content of what I want to share with you uh, under them so that it might be kind of packaged in a way that would be understandable. But as I, I came to the end of Genesis chapter 12 in our last gathering together, we saw how it was that God just poured out his grace upon Abram. Abram, seeing that there was a famine in the land and seeing that he had many people that were in his company that had gathered themselves to him. Individuals, we believe, whom Abram actually evangelized, who had become participants together in his cause, who were supporting him in his venture. That here is a a rather large group, and they have gathered large flocks together, and a famine comes to Canaan. And there's a lack of water. There's a lack of food. There's a lack of food for his, those that are in his company. There's a lack of food and water for those that are his livestock. And so he's faced with this great dilemma. And some individuals look at this dilemma that is before him and they say, you know, the real problem with Abram is that he went down to Egypt. But I would suggest to you, as I did last time, that that was not the sin of Abram. You see, the command had not yet been given, don't go down to Egypt to receive help, but to look, look to me. It had, just hadn't been given yet. But I think that he rather naturally looked at the events that surrounded him, and it made sense to him with the size of his company that they go down to Egypt where there was plenty of water and plenty of food. The problem was not that he went down to Egypt. The problem is what he did when he was in Egypt. Because when he was in Egypt, he was concerned about uh, his safety. He was fearful. And so he contrived a plan together with his wife, one that they had had actually put together when they were back in Ur, that if we ever face any danger, uh, Sarah, you tell them that you're my sister, which in reality she was his sister. a little bit removed from exact family. And, 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 and you will tell them that so that I'll be safe. You know, so we see this great courage rising out from the bosom of Abraham at this point as he's uh, asking Sarah to kind of lay herself on the line. And, and so they, they come up with this plot, this plan, and they go down to Egypt. And as they are there, the servants of Pharaoh see her, and they see that she is beautiful. And they go to Pharaoh, and they say, who? Pharaoh, and they say, listen, you know, this gal is really a knockout, and, and uh, uh, we recommend that you take her into your harem. And so uh, Pharaoh had no problems with having more than one wife. He brings Sarah into uh, his, his fold, into his harem, and he has this intention of having her become one of his wives. Uh, Sarah and Abram are carrying out this plan that they have determined that they would carry out, that... Uh, Abram might be safe. We could even give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they're trying to preserve the promise that God had given Abram 
earlier on. But the fact is that there is deception that is here in the midst of this plan. There is a lie. And we see that as the plot unfolds, Abram finds himself in a very difficult place because Pharaoh sends servants down to get Sarah and they take her back to Pharaoh and then Pharaoh is is so impressed with Sarah. Yes, these men were right. She is beautiful. I'm going to give Abram all kinds of gifts. And so he, he lavishes upon Abram more and more livestock and more possessions and and he gives to him uh, servants that he might have so that now Abram finds himself loaded down with a, a great deal of bounty because his wife is in Pharaoh's house you see now he can't go to Pharaoh at this point he's got all this stuff you know and what does he do he's, he's kind of painted into a corner and It's in the midst of this extremity, this difficulty in life, that God comes to Abram and he rescues him. He provides for Abram a way of escape. The word of God says that in in, in Peter, that God knows how to deliver the righteous. And he he sovereignly comes onto that scene and he delivers Abram when all seems lost to him. Pharaoh's house becomes ill. And we read how it is that he goes, he finds out that Sarah is actually his wife. And he goes to Abram and he says, you know, why didn't you tell me who she was? Go, take her with you. And we see just, isn't it true sometimes we're told, you know, if, if, if we're obedient, the blessing of God will come to us. <laughs> but we look at this text and we see that Abraham is anything but... And I'm going to call him Abraham, even though he's Abram at this point. I'm just going to do it because I'm used to it. So forgive me. Blessing comes to him when he's being disobedient. And that's the way it is sometimes. The blessing does come to us at times when we are disobedient. It is so in this, in this case. And the grace of God is, is so amazing, isn't it? To Abram and... We can identify with Abram in ways. And last time when we were together, I I kind of left off with this note of just the overwhelming reality of God's grace resting upon our lives. That how we, we deserve nothing from him. What we deserve, he mercifully withholds. And what we don't deserve, he graciously gives. And, and focusing upon that, I, I wanted to move on, but I, I just felt compelled to go back to this text and look at grace and consequences. We go through life and we do things. We say things. We sin. We fail. And we are so thankful for the grace of God that comes to us and just washes away all of that residue. And, and, and we have that sense of forgiveness and grace upon our lives. And, and I don't know about you, but as I look back on my life and I see times where I've failed, fallen short of his glory, I've sinned, 
And I have gone to the Lord and I've cried out for his forgiveness and I've just sensed this overwhelming sense of acceptance with him. That that I wish that right there at that point, everything could just stop. You know, it's it's, it's all done. It's it's all behind me now. And, And isn't that true in our own lives when we, you know, if we put our hand on the burner We don't want the consequence of that, right? But we we go through life, and we sin, we fail, and we are forgiven, but that does not remove all of the consequences, does it? That sometimes in the context of life, no matter how much it is that God washes over us and cleanses us and his grace is extended to us, we go through life and we experience consequences for those things that we have done. I can look at my own life, and I see that it's true for me. We don't like those consequences at times. But they are there, and they are part of God working in our lives, his process of transforming us and changing us, making us more like Christ, making us individuals who appreciate what we have received in him. And in this text, we have grace and consequences. We have consequences for Abram's sin, Abram's deception, Abram's lie. It's amazing to me, he just told a lie, right? There's a one lie that he is told, but the consequences are are so far-reaching. And we see them revealed in, I have to check my my verse here. Oh, I'm in Acts. I I forgot. We're in in Genesis, aren't we? So we go back to chapter 12. Now now I'm I'm with you, and it says in verse 16 that he dwelt, that that Pharaoh dwelt well with Abram. He loads him with these things, and it says he gives him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, Male servants and female servants. We stop right there. He gives to Abram male and female servants. Now, the word for servant here in the Old Testament economy and in Hebrew is the same for slave. He gave him male slaves and female slaves. We will refer to them, these individuals, as servants. And in the economy of God, at that time, there were individuals who were slaves or servants, but they were indentured servants. They were individuals who found themselves in a particular place and time in life where they had debts that they could not pay, or where they were incapable of supporting themselves financially, and so they were given over to serve in the households of others where those debts might be repaid or where they might be taken well care of. And when we look at the scriptures, we see that this was a a common practice. And in Proverbs, the 12th chapter, verse 9, it speaks of someone who is very lowly, who has very little, but yet he has one servant. In Judges, the 6th chapter, Gideon, when he... Uh, is, is about to act 
on behalf of the people of Israel, he takes with him 10 servants. And yet, in the midst of acknowledging that he has 10 servants, he, he says he was an individual of very moderate means. It was a common practice in those days for individuals to have servants. And those individuals were taken care of by those individuals whom they served. Under the economy of Israel, in Deuteronomy, the 15th chapter, the scriptures tell us that an indentured servant was to be released after the sixth year, sixth year of serving the individual that they were serving. And we discover in Exodus, the 21st chapter, verse 16, this concerning servanthood under a different manner or fashion. That anyone who kidnaps, Exodus 21, 16, who kidnaps another person to sell them into slavery, that it is a sin that is to be punished by death. And that's put right above the commandment that individuals who dishonor their parents are to be put to death. There's a severity here that accompanies the scriptures. Those who sell others into slavery. And when we come into the New Testament, though we have the example of the Apostle Paul and Philemon, we look at 1 Timothy, the first chapter, verse 10, and we see there that the wicked and ungodly are identified. And among those at the top of the list, or at the beginning of the list, who are considered ungodly or wicked are enslavers. And so the type of servanthood that is being identified here in verse 16 of chapter 12 is that after a manner of indentured servants. And here was a person, there were, there were servants that were given to Abram. Now, what, what is the consequence here that we see? Well, if you turn over to chapter 16, which in my Bible, I only have to turn one page, and I come to verse 1, this is what the scriptures say. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now where did Hagar come from? She came from Egypt and came into that family and that was a consequence not of his being in Egypt, right? Pharaoh didn't say, hey, here's Abram, he's a good guy, I'm just going to give him a lot of stuff because I like him. No, he, he gave Abram a lot of stuff because Abram lied. And so Hagar goes into the household, or goes to the household of Abram. And it is so significant that when we come to chapter 16, it says, Hagar the Egyptian. Because the word of God, God wants us to reflect back on, on where these problems began. And the problems that we still live with in the context of our world today. You see, there was a consequence of his lie. And who could have ever imagined that the world, thousands of years later, would be impacted the way it has been impacted because of one lie? 
Do you find that amazing? I, I find that incredible. And then we move on. I'm not going to develop that thought any farther, but just simply move on to another consequence. He gives Abram all of these possessions. What, what is the consequence there? Well, you know, this is a good thing. You know, if you're Abram and, and you, this bounty is coming to you and, and, and there's much, you look upon it, we looked at it as, as like blessing just a few moments ago, didn't we? But it was also a consequence, there was a consequence that flowed from these possessions going to Abram. And that is that later on the text we're looking at today, there was a result of strife over those possessions. That those very things that were given to Abraham to be a blessing also, in a certain sense, became a curse to him. There was a consequence. There was problems as a result of of having these things given to him. And then another consequence is at the end of the chapter. I mean, when Abram is called and the promise is given to Abram, he talks to Abram and he says, you are going to be a blessing to all the nations. You know, and, and the seed that comes after you is going to be a tremendous blessing. <laughs> and he goes down to Egypt into the midst of the world, right? He's there. And what happens? Because of his sin, instead of being a blessing to Pharaoh and the people that are there, he is quite the opposite. They, they, be, they, 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 are, they suffer from, from some sort of skin disorder or whatever. Some sort of plague. And instead of helping the world, he does the world hurt. And not only does he do the world hurt, but the world rebukes him. <laughs> we, we go to the, to the Word of God and... It's not easy to receive a rebuke from a brother, right? Or a sister in the Lord sometimes. And, but to receive a rebuke from the world. It, doesn't that seem kind of upside down? Kind of reversal here? But the, these are, are consequences of Abram's sin. And when we go through life We are in the process always of making choices. Some choices that we make are good choices. And the result of making those choices might be difficulty, might be trial, might be unjust. We make other choices in life, and some of the choices we make then are not so good. And as a result of those choices, the consequences might be just the same as I talked about from making good choices. Why it is that consequences flow from the things we say and do, I cannot tell you. It is left to the providence of God as he deals with us individually, as he's working out his will and his plan for our lives. 
But there are consequences that flow from the things that we do. And those consequences can put us in places where we feel desperate straits. Because we are in desperate straits. In 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, verse 18. I came across this verse. I'd read it many times before, but it just never registered until I was reading one of the Puritans a number of years ago. And I believe that there was a book that was authored. I can't remember who the gentleman was that wrote this book. But he, he talked about the, the Christian scarcely saved. And in, in, and in Peter, uh, where is it? First Peter, the fourth chapter, verse 18, it says the righteous are scarcely saved. And what Peter is saying here, under the inspiration of God, is that as we go through life, as we make choices, we go through consequences of those choices, whether those choices are good or bad, we find ourselves oftentimes in desperate straits. And Calvin said, in the context of a life of a believer, he said, a believer is like a ship going through water that is surrounded by rocks, and it will never reach its port unless he has escaped a thousand deaths. The path that we travel in the context of this world, Calvin said, is thorny and filled with great difficulties. In our lives, and I, I, I threw choices in there from good choices and suffering from them, I, along together with Choices that may not be so wise. But the reality of this that I want to press upon us is that there are, and we understand this, there are consequences for things that we do in life. And it is according to God's providence that we face the things that we do in the context of life. So how do we deal with this? Well, in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse 15, the scriptures encourages us to walk after a particular manner. You know, and I don't know about you, but when I think about this, and, and I'm sure someone could develop this thought much better than how I'm develop, and developing uh, this this morning, but this whole idea of consequence is very sobering to me. Is it sobering to you? Do you, do you find that? Sobering, do you find it sobering that, I mean, have you, have you ever done something, just a small thing, and you, you, you looked and you just saw this tremendous consequence from it? And that was true in your life. Somebody else does the same thing and there's no consequence whatsoever. Right? It's, just, it's sobering to me. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, walk circumspectly. Walk circumspectly. It's a King James version. We, ESV would never say it quite like that. To walk circumspectly. Realizing that in the context of life, consequence, consequences flow to us. We are to walk after a particular manner. We are to walk circumspectly. We are to walk very carefully. And 
And once again, I wish I know what Puritan gave this example, but I found it an, an interesting kind of example of what it means to walk circumspectly. And he said in the context of his surroundings, there were walls that walled in houses so that individuals, individual plots were protected from individuals who might invade their property and try to steal from them. And so what they would do is these walls would be put around their property, around the perimeter of their house, what have you. And as they were built on the very top, they would take cut, like cut glass and put it on top around the walls. Big surprise if you're trying to break in, you know, in the middle of the night, right? <laughs> kind of cure trying to steal from others, you know. And, and the glass was, was put there because it was a deterrent from people entering your property unlawfully. And he said one day he looked out and he saw a cat walking across the wall. And as the cat was walking across the wall, it was walking very carefully with each step, knowing that if it misstepped, the paw would be cut. Do, do cats have paws? They call them paws. Dogs have paws, and I know they have paws. Sorry. So cats walking that way, and, and, and that kind of gives us an indication as to how we are to regard our walk in the Lord. There's, there's much joy there, there, there is an abundance of, of uh, I don't know, I, I'm kind of an emotional person, a, a sense of emotion that we have in our relationship with the Lord that overwhelms us at times. And, and there is joy that is to fill our lives and our hearts. But in the midst of that, we are to walk circumspectly. And you see, Abram at this point didn't walk circumspectly. He wasn't thinking about what could come from the lie he was telling. But the scriptures tell us that when we come to the word of God, we are to go to the Old Testament scriptures and examine them because these things are given to us so that we might receive warning from them, right? And instruction from what we see come from their lives. And so if there's value to you in this morning and and are emphasizing here the issue of consequences related to our Christian walk, then I hope that you have received it and can be encouraged by it. We then come, and I know we're not going to get through the message today, so we'll do the best we can with the time we have. I gave you five points. We're not going to make through the five points. But let's look at the second one. We look at grace and consequence. Now we look at grace and worship. And we go to Genesis, the 13th chapter, verses 1 through 4, and we see grace and worship, or grace and the vertical. So Abram went from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. And Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And Abram called, the, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Grace and worship, or grace in the vertical. It, sin has been committed. 
And God is in the process of restoring Abram. And the scriptures tell us that when Abram is, is going back, as he's, been, as he's been thrust from the land, he's been jettisoned from there, and he's going back into the promised land, he goes back to a very special place. He goes back to the place where his altar was first built, and he calls upon the name of the Lord. Calling upon the name of the Lord is synonymous with he worships the Lord as he goes back to that place where he first built an altar of the Lord in that land. Now, did the restoration process begin before he arrived there? We don't have it revealed to us in the text, but I would suggest to you that the restoration process had already begun in his life. Do you think that when Abram left, you know, he couldn't peer into the future and see this issue with Hagar. He couldn't do that. He couldn't peer into the future and see the problems that would result in the context of the, of, the, of, of the servants that were of his house and those of Lot. He couldn't see those things. All he could know at that point is that God has delivered me from this place. And I believe that when an individual comes to this place of where, where they've fallen, they've sinned, and God is in the process of restoring an individual, there's this sense of relief and release that comes. And part of that sense of release is repentance that takes place in the life of an individual. This morning, in the context of our communion, Keith talked about reflection and going to the Lord and asking for forgiveness. I believe that probably Abram, as he was leaving Egypt, was seeking God's forgiveness, that he was repenting, that he was saying, Lord, forgive me. I, I did not trust you when I was there. I know that I put in jeopardy, humanly speaking, the promise that you've given me. I realize how I've treated my wife. I realize that I have not trusted in you, and I am, I ask you to forgive me. I'm sure that private prayers took place there. But there's a purpose here that we find when we see that he went back to where he began. Where he built his first altar. To that place before he went down into Egypt and lied. He went back to that place. He went back to that place of communion with God. He went back to that place of fellowship with God, where he had built this altar. And it's interesting here that it's, it doesn't say Abraham went out into the wilderness somewhere and he, be, he began to beseech God. He began to seek God. It says he went there and he built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. When those phrases are used in Scripture, they are synonymous with public worship. Not private worship, as important as it is, but with public worship. That part of his restoration was returning to public worship. To being in that place where he is assembled together with the people of God and they call upon the name of the Lord. And what transpired in the context of that worship? Well, I would suggest to you that when they offered sacrifices, there was 
a public confession of sin. I, I, I'm sure that Abraham did not necessarily go into all the details, but I'm sure that there was a repentance that took place in the context of that worship. There were prayers of repentance that took place. And I would suggest to you that also there was a sense of proclamation of the significance of what it was that they were doing. Because there was an understanding that sacrificing upon an altar was a prefiguring of the coming of Christ. And there was an explanation, perhaps an expounding of that. Can you see the people of Abram's company that there they are, they're sacrificing upon the altar. There are these prayers of confession and repentance that are taking place. There's a proclamation of the truth that transpires there in a very rudimentary a sense there is public worship that is taking place. There's no, there's no indication that public worship took place in Egypt. Why? Was it because of the place? Well, I don't know, but I would suggest to you that it probably didn't take place because Abram had lied. And he was, and he, and he was in sin. But it takes place when he's restored. And the emphasis here is upon that of public worship. We, we, we see in the scriptures the emphasis upon this over and over and over again. You know, I, I remember when I was young, back in the 70s and 80s, I don't know about you, but we looked down. I looked down upon those individuals. They just attended church. I couldn't see any sense of life in them, you know. And so I just assumed they're coming to church because they think that if they go to church, they will be saved. You know, church attendance and, you know, that whole thing. We used to say, those of you that are my age, you know, you're not just saved because you go to church. Some of you go to church because you think you're saved. And so we, we'd address that problem, you know. Young people, I really address that one. You know. But... We're not saved by such attendance, but let me tell you, the scriptures emphasize that that is the outworking of God's grace in your life. That if God's grace is being poured over upon us, there is that desire to do that. And we don't, we don't have any sense here that the pattern of worship has been given. We have no sense that the pattern of worship is given that you should gather together on the Sabbath. Though when the commandments come later on, it goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Now I won't get into, in, 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 into that issue, the, the pattern. But we see the importance of it. And, you know, it's kind of interesting here that Genesis 13 begins with a focus upon worship. Where does it end? He's building an altar again. There's public worship that's taking place. The chapter begins and ends with that. And it does so not by accident. It does so so that we might capture the sense of the importance of what is transpiring. And I would suggest something else to you that maybe this is just a little bit of uh, a drifting. We may not have any exact pattern established, but we have, we have a prescription that is given to us that we are not free to do whatever it is that we want to do in the context of worship. What was taking place though was the beginning, there was repentance, there was proclamation. The context of public worship is to consist of certain ordinances. ordinances. 
Those things that I've just mentioned, but there's the reading of the Word of God. There is a systematical preaching of God's Word. It revealed, these, these things are revealed to us in Timothy. Prayers that take place in the context of assembling together outside of the pastoral epistle, epistle of music <laughs> that takes place. But we're not at liberty to, to just add whatever it is that we want to in the context of worship. I've always said, look, if it didn't fit at Sinai, it doesn't fit now. That was kind of my thought. We don't exist for the purpose of, of entertainment. We don't exist where churches gather together. Instead of preaching the Word of God this morning, we'll have a play. I just mentioned that because it's Christmas time, and that's what happens places. We're not at liberty to make, to, to take those, uh, to make those choices. But God prescribes for us in His Scriptures, in the Word of God, those ordinances that we should pursue and we should follow. And so, I want to impress upon you just continually that in the outworking of God's grace, it is seen in the context of our public worship. It's just seen. And this is never to bring any condemnation towards anyone. I must tell you, I have never in my life been able. I, I don't know if it's, I, you know, I don't know if, I came, kind of came from a background, a holiness background. Anybody come from a holiness background? I, I came from a holiness background, and I came from a, a town that was, you know, legalistic in certain manner, and so, you know, certain patterns of my life, I, I know they're indwell me because of my background, but I, I just... I have never been able to take lightly the responsibility and the privilege as a peculiar person to worship God publicly. Now, I failed, I failed, man. I, if, if I were to stand up here and tell you things, you know, my life, not so good, we'd, we'd be here for quite some time, I'm sure, and, and I wouldn't want to tell you. And you, don't, you don't want to listen, I know. But I emphasize this because I think it is so critical. And, you know, this worship took place in the context in Abram's life, in a context of unbelief. Not trying to figure out how to get the world into the church by our own conniving patterns, but just simply being committed to God to worship him. It's only two points this morning, but if I go into the next one, it's going to be too long. But um, I hope this morning that God has touched your heart in some way. You know, maybe in just being reminded of something that you know is true or being encouraged and instructed in some way to be helpful to you. My purpose whenever I come here is to uh, glorify God and hope that in what is shared that his people are encouraged and instructed 
in the word of God. And I pray that God's grace overflow to you today.